the most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon and welcome to the Sunday edition of the best of Fight Back. More of what you want to hear from the week that was. On Monday, when we addressed the political controversy over the Canada Food Guide, a caller named Donna told us she cannot afford to fill her plate with fresh fruits and vegetables, and she has to use a food bank to put food on the table. Donna is not alone. According to Feed Ontario's annual report, the number of seniors 65 and over using food banks has nearly tripled from 3% to 8% in the past 10 years. The organization has also released a new hunger map, which shows riding by riding that food insecurity exists everywhere in the province. The biggest percentage of food bank users are in Premier Doug Ford's Etobicoke North riding, New Democrat Suze Morrison's Toronto Centre riding, and Liberal Mitzi Hunter's Scarborough Guildwood riding. Libby Snymer was joined by Talia Bronstein of the Daily Bread Food Bank and Amanda King of Feed Ontario to discuss. I wouldn't say that we were surprised. Um, I think it did show to us what we always anecdotally knew, which is that hunger touches every corner of the province. Um, In terms of the province on a whole, we actually saw a 3% increase in the number of visits, um, which exceeded 3 million visits for the year. So that is the highest we have on record at present. And 61% over what period in Toronto? I can I can speak to that one. Um, So each year, um, Daily Bread does uh, a report on looking at trends in uh, food bank use over the the course of the year. So between April 1st, uh, 2017 to March 31st, 2018, we saw a 61% increase in the number of visits to the inner suburbs of Toronto. So that compares to... Overall, the city of Toronto that saw a 14% increase. So it's, it's the number of visits and not the number of people. Correct. Number of visits. So the people who are having problems making ends meet, who are facing food insecurity, it's just getting worse. Potentially. I mean, we, um, we're we doing an exploration right now about the number of visits per person to see if there are trends with respect to what people are using food banks over the long term and quite frequently versus people that might come once, twice, three times in a year because it's sort of helping to get them uh, through a gap. You know, they might have lost their job or, or something like that. It's a bit episodic. So that's something that we're currently exploring. Okay. I would like to get into the issue of people over 65 using food banks and and the jump there. And, you know, when I see 8%, that's pretty high. That is higher than the hardest hit area of town. So to what do you attribute that, Amanda? So what we attribute that to is the rising cost of living. So oftentimes seniors, uh, much like many other people, but oftentimes seniors are living on a fixed income. So when rent goes up, when hydro goes up, when basic living expenses continue to increase, it can become harder and harder to balance that already tight budget. And what we're seeing, as you touched upon, is while we have a growing senior population, seniors accessing food banks is growing at a rate actually three times faster than the senior population itself in Ontario. Wow, that's uh, very concerning. Talia, I mean, how much of this is, you know, you look at Toronto Centre, the word rent, is that really the main 
cause or the only cause? It's definitely a a major concern in the city of Toronto. Um, In our annual survey of food bank clients last year, we asked people how many people had missed a meal to pay for something else. And uh, close to 60% of respondents said they had actually had to miss a meal to pay for something. And the top three reasons were to pay for rent, to pay for transportation, and to pay for their telephone. So rent remains the number one reason for people that um, need to pay a bill, and that's why they can't afford um, to eat sometimes. So certain I'd say rent is the number one. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm a little surprised that the next thing is transportation. I would have thought it would be maybe medication or something like that. Amanda? Well, it differs situation over situation, um, but certainly rent is by far um, the most significant. So what we've seen um, province-wide as well as in Toronto is that um, almost 90% of those that are accessing food banks are rental or social housing tenants who are spending upwards of 70% of their income on rent. So when you look at that huge chunk being spent on housing, things like transportation and medicine and telephone and food, there's so little left for those. Um, and also because rent is a fixed expense and those are uh, things that you can kind of uh, shimmy around, um, those are the things that they tend to go without next um, or have to prioritize. Talia, what would you like to leave us with on this? Hunger is in every single riding across the province, and this spans across all parties. If we want to address the the real reason why people are coming to food banks is because they're struggling to make ends meet. This is an issue of poverty and food security. So if we want to really address this, we need all parties to come together for a coordinated provincial level approach that also understands these local specific issues that are affecting people in their own ridings. Talia Bronstein of the Daily Bread Food Bank and Amanda King of Feed Ontario. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Zoomers with higher incomes are not only helping their adult children with home purchases. A new Leger poll says a third of parents are also chipping in for their kids' rents. Libby spoke with real estate agent Ellie Davis and personal finance educator and consumer advocate Kelly Keene to find out more. This survey revealed that it's it's dramatically up from the one that we conducted in 2017. Uh, nearly 40% are saying that they're going to have to postpone their retirement due to the support, either helping out with rent or um, intending to help their child buy a place that's up from 27%. And also that it's putting a strain on them, helping out their kids that they won't be able to pay off their debt. 34% of parents are saying that, up from 22%. And interestingly enough, we had another survey for Seniors Month not that long ago, and that revealed that one in five Canadians, 60-plus, are still working. Of those, 12% are saying that because they're helping their kids out financially, they still have to work. You know, it's interesting. Just uh, on Sunday, I was having lunch with some friends and and one of the women and she's a single parent uh though you know she does well and her daughter is going into law school and in terms of the rent she said i want my daughter to be safe and she found uh you know a good apartment that she feels comfortable with i guess you know with with some security there is it's twenty three hundred dollars a month that's crazy um, and, and I get it. I get that a lot of parents definitely want to help their kids out, want to give them a secure place, and that's wonderful. It's natural. But the thing is, is, is it, you know, can you help 
How are you going to help if you can't? So, i.e., are you going to take out a line of credit to provide this assistance for your ch- ch- children or what have you? And then, Libby, there's also the element of if there's more than one sibling. When we did this survey back in 2017, I did a lot of interviews, had a lot of people, you know, emailing, tweeting, all that type of thing, saying, hey, my mom and dad keeps helping out my brother and my sister, but what about me? What does that mean at retirement? And I think that, you know, if you're giving that helping hand, you also want to make sure that you have a helping hand in the form of a financial plan, talking to someone like a certified financial planner, and maybe getting your adult child to be talking to a planner as well. Ellie Davis, uh, you're in the real estate market. Uh, you know, what are you finding? I'm finding the same thing. Uh, very often, um, friends of mine, clients of mine are all helping their kids either uh, rent an apartment or the down payment for a small condo just so they can have a foothold in the, in the market because we live in such an expensive city. And um, that's just the way it is. If they can help, they are helping. Kelly, in terms of attitudes, did you find, I mean, I would imagine that most parents really want to help their kids. Does it, what's, what's the impact if they can't do it to the extent that they would like? Uh, it's, it's, it can be devastating. And Libby, it's interesting because a lot of times the people that really want to help are the ones that can't afford to. Now, our survey didn't go into that. That's me speaking anecdotally. But it's so important that you, you know, like you said, like have the conversation, bring it out into the open. Again, maybe get that independent third party to help you have it because what are the implications of that help with the down payment, for example? And then maybe your child, um, you know, God forbid, has to declare bankruptcy or marries and then divorces. What, what, you know, what are the parameters around that gift? Getting it in writing. Is it a gift, in fact? Is it a loan? Oftentimes, families will have these conversations and there's this miscommunication or misunderstanding that I thought mom and dad were giving this to me, but in fact, it was a loan. If you're actually going to co-sign for your children, understanding how that can affect you later on. Unfortunately, I'm on the other side of hearing some of these um, incredibly sad stories. And, um, you know, just uh, it's always great to get it in writing. It's great to get a professional opinion, talk with a lawyer, an accountant, and make sure that you really understand what that, if you can or can't help. Because like I said, a lot of people that can't help, they're still taking out the lines of credit on their home or things of that sort. They're just making it work in whatever way they can, not understanding that they still have their own financial security to look um, towards and ensure that that's intact as well. Kelly Keene, personal finance educator and FP Canada's consumer advocate and real estate agent, Ellie Davis. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. To your health now, and a big spike in emergency room visits because of alcohol-related illness. And the biggest part of that increase is made up of women, young women. It's a worrying trend that has been written up in the Canadian Medical Association Journal. Dr. Daniel Myron of the School of Epidemiology and Public Health at the University of Ottawa is one of the study's authors. And he joined Libby to talk about the findings. I think we were quite surprised by the amount that these visits had increased over the study period. Is it just that... In terms of the women, is it just that women are drinking more, binge drinking more? I I don't even understand what kind of a, what would bring you to an emergency room. I mean, you have too much to drink. 
yeah. you don't feel well the next morning. So the so I think I think people who are showing up in the emergency room from drinking alcohol are quite ill. Uh, and when we looked at our study, uh, the people who came to the emergency room for from alcohol were more likely to be admitted to hospital and have to you know spend multiple days there receiving care uh, than any than someone who walked in for any reason on average. Uh, but the, the types of harms that we saw were people who uh, came in uh, with uh, intoxication, people who came in uh, who were in withdrawal from alcohol, uh, people who had drunk enough to seriously damage their liver or other important organs like their heart or pancreas, uh, and people who had uh, alcohol poisoning uh, from drinking so much. And, you, and you'd see that when, where people ha- would have uh, trouble breathing uh, or be uh, not able to, to respond to other individuals. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is very concerning. So what are the symptoms of alcohol poisoning? Uh, so, so individuals with alcohol poisoning can uh, be vomiting, they can be not responding, slurring their speech, having problems with their coordination. Uh, I think really the concern is, is that if someone has drunk enough that they're not able to be, to be roused or to respond, uh, you would be worried that they could vomit and choke or aspirate on their vomit, uh, which is it's just you know, something that could be extremely dangerous. Uh, so uh, I, th- I think that there, it's important that if you're around someone who's consumed a large amount of alcohol, that there's things that you can do to, to care for them. But I think what's more important is ensuring that we have less people who are drinking that quantity of alcohol. Is it binge drinking or is it that, uh, you know, there's less of a stigma around women drinking? Uh, you know, I'm just trying to pinpoint this. It's going to be a combination of stuff. If you look at the the size of these increases, there's not going to be a simple explanation. So I think it's people are drinking more. As you highlighted, people are engaging in heavy or binge drinking more frequently. Uh, we have to keep in mind that uh, I think a lot of the headlines have been about, uh, you know, the rising harms in women. Uh, and if you look at the age group of 25 to 29, it's true that uh, visits went up 240%. Uh, and women. But I, I think we really, you know, to, if we keep our eye on the on the bigger picture, it's that uh, these increases are occurring for all people living in Ontario, uh, and that men continue to have more harms than women, uh, and that the majority of visits continue to be by men, and in particular, uh, men who are in their middle age. Do you have a view on all the liberalization of alcohol sales that uh, we are in the midst of in the province? I think we have to keep a couple things in mind. One is that the cost of alcohol on society is enormous. It's in the billions of dollars. Uh, And I think that, you know, we can talk about health harms, but this is also something that uh, leads to substantial lost uh, employment, tax revenue. It's it's something that hits hits us across society. There's very good evidence that there are policies that governments can put in place to reduce uh, problem drinking and its harms. Uh, and that consistently finds that putting uh, regulations on the price of alcohol, ensuring that we limit the number of stores selling alcohol and the hours that those stores are open, uh, and restricting the marketing of alcohol and, and really uh, aggressive advertisements that are directed to young people are, are good interventions, and they're recommended by bodies like the World Health Organization. Uh, and I, I think that it's important that governments pay heed 
Okay, well, they're clearly not. They're clearly not. We're we're on the trajectory for extreme liberalization. And and I think that we should be concerned that any policies that uh, increase the availability of alcohol, make it cheaper, create more promotion for it, will result in more people consuming alcohol and consuming in more harmful patterns. Dr. Daniel Myron of the School of Epidemiology and Public Health at the University of Ottawa. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. There was a number of developments in international news this past week. Boris Johnson was sworn in as the new British Prime Minister. There was Robert Mueller's long-awaited testimony before U.S. Congress. And there is also the escalation of tensions with Iran. To talk about these issues, Libby was joined by public affairs analyst Michael Tobe, Sean Spear of the Macdonald Laurier Institute, and Janice Stein of the Monk School of Global Affairs. Committee hearings have always been politicized, but here they have someone with, frankly, and I'm sorry for the pun, unimpeachable integrity. Um, and you could just see. Um, how exhausted he was, how uncomfortable he was, how measured he was, and how painful it was for him to be a participant in that kind of process. Did that testimony change anybody's mind on any side of this? I'd be stunned if it did. We're still left with the fact uh, that a foreign power intentionally and deliberately sought to interfere with the American election. And that ought to be the subject of a of political consensus, the, the kind of fundamental question about how do we protect our democracy, uh, I'm afraid, is, is, is also being politicized at best and at worst being completely neglected. And, and, and it seems to me that is amongst the various parts of uh, yesterday's episode that's regrettable. Uh, I would put that near the top of the list. I'd like to bring in Michael Tobe, public affairs analyst. Uh, Michael, how do you see what happened yesterday? Really, the Democrats got the two points that they really desired, which was that they got on the record from Mueller that he directly said that, you know, you can eventually charge Mr. Trump with a crime after he leaves as president, either by defeat in 2020 or when his two terms are up in 2024, Although later on, he actually did backtrack on that statement a little bit. The Democrats are only just going to play with this one line. That's really what they wanted there. And they also wanted to ensure that it was out there that Mueller himself and the Mueller report, the 448-page report, did not completely exonerate President Trump from all the charges, mostly dealing with obstruction of justice. So they got what they wanted. The Republicans got, though, a lot more than they actually bargained for because, and I completely disagree with Janice on this, Robert Mueller did not handle himself very well at all. He stumbled and fumbled through most of his testimony. I have never seen at any one of these committees someone asked to repeat so many different lines and sentences and paragraphs, or then he plays the angle of almost being dumb, which I really didn't like, where he said that, well, what's written in the report will stand on its own. Uh, I trust Mueller uh, in the sense that uh, this was, I think, his 90th uh, appearance before Congress and arguably his most important, given the subject matter and given the politicized and polarized nature of this issue. And I think what you saw was someone who uh, was being intentional and deliberate. And who could blame him, given those circumstances? As Michael says, even... uh, 
snips of what he said have been used uh, to try to to try to score political points. Had he been loose, um, it would have been even worse. And so I think that we put a, a, a man in a, a virtually impossible circumstances and he did the, did the best he could. As for the investigation itself, first part of the, the report highlights uh, efforts on the part of a foreign government to interfere with U.S. campaigns. And as Janice says, this is something that is not unique to Russia and not even unique to the United States. And I think that's the part of this issue that requires much more attention. And I would say a pox on both Democrats and Republican houses uh, for neglecting something that, as I say, ought to um, be the subject of, of political consensus. And that is that our elections and our politics ought to be decided by us on issues concerning us and, and not be uh, subject to the type of interference and um not by and, russian and bots? manipulation by others well, sean do you think and Libby, do you think that the procedures that the Kenyan government has put into place with a committee headed by our clerk who's a neutral civil servant that they will go public during the election period if they identify foreign interference of this kind do you consider that a meaningful step forward that distinguishes us from the united states because we have paid attention to this issue if anything, Janice, what I would say is I would just encourage the government, um, particularly the, the career, uh, the dedicated career public servants, to make sure that that process is inclusive um, so that all political actors uh, 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 can have confidence that it is that it's transcending partisanship and transcending politics. We need to create the space where we can have big political debates. And the only way that can be done is, as I say, if we're confident um, that that space is protected from pollution from other sources. Sean Spear of the McDonald Laurier Institute, Janice Stein of the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Affairs Analyst, Michael Tobe. I'm Jane Brown, and you're listening to the best of Fight Back. Fight Back with Libby Snymer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. We've gone through the audio. Here are some of the best calls of the week. Paul from Woodstock phoned to offer his thoughts on older parents paying rent for their adult children. My young lad put an offering on a place, and two weeks later, the real estate phones up. It says, uh, we have other offers. Would you like to make another offer? At one time, when it was multiple offers, they had to be dealt with one at a time in the order they would receive, and they were either accepted or declined. You're scaring these young people in, in, into buying more than they can afford. It no. should be done the way it's supposed to be done, the way it used to be done, because all this doing is driving the cost of real estate through the ceiling. Bill in Toronto phoned to offer what he thinks about the Mueller report and testimony. They've destroyed so many people's lives. They've gone in, they found tax fraud, this, whatever, from way back when and destroyed people's lives. And yet they spent three years trying to take down the president and don't have a single thing on them. The worst sham that I've ever seen in, in, in all of politics. And now, Fight Back's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week comes from Jan in Guelph, who says the solution to senior debt is to be aware of the issue earlier in life. I know people can fall upon hard times during their lives and get to the point where they can't afford food when they're seniors. There's the other 
sort of side of the coin where people don't give any thought to their later years, especially when they're very young. Not, I didn't. I'm sure you, you perhaps didn't. But I think we need to educate a certain group of people like in the later years of school and when they're going to work to manage their money so that they won't fall upon hard times when they're senior. That does it for this week's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays at 416-360-0740 on Zoomer Radio. AM 740 and 96.7 FM in downtown Toronto. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca and follow us on Twitter at fightbacklibby. I'm Jane Brown. Join me again next weekend when we'll round up the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Neimer.